Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today on the podcast, I'm really thrilled actually to introduce to you someone that I've known for a long time, nearly as long as I've known for my husband, which is a very long time. So someone called Magnus Harrison, who's a medical doctor, and we first met in New Zealand in 1995, so many years ago. And life always goes in circles, a massive circle with myself and Magnus, and he's now working with us, which is super, super exciting. So welcome, Magnus, to the podcast today. Hello, Louise. So tell us a bit about, I know a lot about you, some things that I might not reveal on the podcast today, but um, (laughs) tell me a bit about you because our medical backgrounds I mean we're both medical doctors but our medical backgrounds even right from the start in 95 were very different weren't they Mm. they've carried on being very different so if you wouldn't mind describing a bit about where you've come from what you're doing and then we can explain the full circle and why you're here today I will do so I'll start a little bit before 95 Louis so I'm a Newcastle medical school graduate in 93 uh, and always wanted to do emergency medicine. And I remember really clearly as a third year medical student, the medical registrar working some sort of magic on a patient who came in with a low blood glucose. And on the end of a syringe, this patient just woke up and I thought, how fantastic, get the diagnosis right, get the treatment right, and you make a difference straight away. So I was one on emergency medicine more or less straight away. And I did a bit in the northeast of England, in Sunderland and South Shields, and then straight to New Zealand to be an emergency medicine registrar. And we actually met in the council offices of the New Zealand Medical Council where we were all trying to register and fortunately we all had the right bits of paper and they signed us off to be able to work. Did a year there, did almost a year in Sydney as well shortly afterwards again in emergency medicine but always wanted to try and do research and there was very little research available in emergency medicine at that time and had a failed attempt initially in Stoke and then I went to work at Manchester Royal Infirmary which is probably one of the most formative periods of my career. It's where I learned about medical stats, Mm. it's where I learned about diagnostic statistics and numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm, and really set me up for my registrar training scheme in emergency medicine, which was in the West Midlands, and I became a consultant in Stoke as a first consultant job. And this is where things all got a little bit interesting. (laughs) Six weeks in, somebody said to me, do you fancy being clinical lead? And they hadn't identified any particular talent or ability I had. They'd just identified that the other three had had a go and it was probably wise that I had a try. That's a huge job, isn't it? I mean, Stoke is a big hospital, big trauma centre. It's not a small little DGH, is it? It's a big, busy hospital. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Tertiary centre, medical school that was quite rudimentary embryonic almost at that time but neurosurgery kind of thoracic surgery full-on trauma and at that point in time was one of the busiest emergency departments in the country Mm. and we had 2.6 consultants the 0.6 was obviously not 60 percent of an individual they just did 60 percent of a job and there was a a realization that we needed a lead and i i stepped in without really knowing what it was about but absolutely loved it 
Mm. Love the interaction with people, love being able to make a difference. And quite quickly after that, I became clinical director of the emergency department and the acute medicine department. And that led me into working with the team at Midstaffs. And it was absolutely the time that Midstaffs were having all their difficulties. And that was probably one of the most challenging and yet probably one of the most rewarding times I've had dealing with essentially an absolutely broken team as a result of what had gone on there. Can you just explain for those that might not know about Midstaffs? Yeah, so Midstaffs Hospital was in Stafford. And those that are a bit like you and me, Louise, a bit longer in the tooth, will remember what went on at Midstaffs. But it was um, how to describe. So I've got lots of colleagues there who are bruised and battered by what went on there. Mm. They were recognised as having adverse mortality. And for those that are going to scream at the podcast now, I'm quite prepared to discuss the statistics around whether it was adverse or not. Mm. But adverse mortality as a result of systemic failures within systems and processing mid-staffs. And the emergency department were pilloried in the press. And I have two really good colleagues that worked there at the time. They'd both left by the time I was asked to help out there. And I, I led the emergency department in mid-staffs as well as stake for a period. And just a broken team who actually all went to work every day to do the right thing for the patients that are in front of them. And I suppose what I learned from that was the systems, the processes, the cultures all have to be lined up to actually be able to deliver care in the right way. And none of them went to work at any point in time to do a bad job. You know, it was hugely important and influential for me in my career. And on the back of that, I applied for the um, Clinical Executive Fast Track Scheme, which the Secretary of State at the time, Jeremy Hunt, had put in place. And I essentially was sponsored to have a year more or less outside of the NHS. Got to go to Harvard to do a postgraduate course because reimagining healthcare worked with Baroness Cumberledge in the House of Lords. There were 50 of us on the programme. It wasn't just me as an individual. Don't get that idea. Worked in the House of Lords, spent a bit of time working with EE, the phone company, helping define their healthcare space. Was asked to do their keynote speech. I was so far away from Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. It's unbelievable. But we did their keynote health address. Got to go to India went to India because India's got a very different healthcare system to the UK and there's private and essentially very little public provision. And I reviewed 12 healthcare systems over there to decide what we could potentially bring back and transport into the NHS. And on the back of that year, it was really obvious that I needed to do more to keep myself interested. And I ended up as the medical director and deputy chief exec at Queen's Hospital in Burton-upon-Trent. If I'm going on, I apologise. Oh, it's all very interesting and relevant, actually. What became obvious in Burton, Burton was a small DGH, £160 million, 400-ish beds, three hospitals, though, Mm. in the south of Staffordshire. What became obvious really quickly was the population we served wasn't big enough to allow physicians to specialise or surgeons to specialise. So it was a really general approach to medicine in the broadest sense. And it was clinically unsustainable. Not clinically unsafe, although it had been recognised as a Keogh Trust with adverse mortality and went into special measures. We turned special measures around really quite quickly and I, I wouldn't want to claim any responsibility for that, only for the ongoing plan that I had as a medical director. But it became really obvious quite quickly to me that we're going to have to merge with a bigger organisation. And that's when the merger with Derby Teaching Hospitals started. And I was one of the two SROs 
for the patient benefit case. And the patient benefit case essentially is looking at a group of specialties and being able to describe the benefits for the populations that you represent. Mm. And it became really quite obvious, again, fairly, I say fairly quickly, it took 18 months to write it. But in six specialties that we'd picked, I could clearly define a benefit for the populations in Derby and the populations in Burton. And I could still do that now. I can still clinically evidence the impact of the merger positively for that group of people. So the merger went through and it was, you know, when you look back on your career and there's those times and you, you know the grin and you just mm. think, I have no idea how I am in this room having this conversation. Mm. So at that time, we had to go through the Competition Markets Authority, the CMA. And, you know, you hear of the CMA. I didn't realize what they did. And I sat in front of a whole panel of health economists, lawyers over contract law. Then one of their team walked in and he said, I'm the devil's advocate. And his job role was actually devil's advocate in this panel. And I couldn't believe it. So I was there with the chief exec I was working to at the time, Gavin Boyle. And we both sat there and had to go through a whole patient benefit case with the CMA to prove there was no detriment to health and care as a consequence of the merger so we weren't decreasing competition and as a consequence decreasing the quality of care offered unfortunately we got through first time wow. so there were no second bites of the cherry so we, we went in and we we merged the uh, both trusts on the 3rd of july 2018 and i became the medical director and deputy chief exec of the university hospitals of derby and burton was medical director for three and a bit years there. And then early this year, 2022, the chief exec moved on and I became the interim chief exec of UHDB. And I think right now that's the pinnacle of my NHS career. So being able to have influence over the care and health of 1.2 million people, you know, what's not to want about that? I say that, and I say that rather glibly, and I'm looking back now through rose-tinted spectacles because the last two and a half years as medical director in the COVID pandemic response Mm. was the hardest thing I've had to do in my career. And for people that are not as close to this, we had eight staff members die as a consequence of COVID. Three consultants died from COVID in our organisation. And um, as a medical director, there's always a level of unexpected events that occur when you you work out what you're going to do but having three consultants die in a pandemic you know you, there's nothing prepares you for that nothing gets you ready and then four other staff members and we decided really early on into the pandemic that for everybody that died we would have a minute's silence at whichever particular hospital we've got five hospitals now in the in the trust and one of the consultants who died was a guy called Manjeet Singh Riat, who was one of the A&E consultants in Derby. And I'd known Manjeet for years prior to being the medical director. And he was one of the original absolute godfathers of emergency medicine nationally. And seeing all the ambulances pull up outside, and they did it in such a way that they could all open the front doors out. So it looked like they'd got wings and they put the blue lights on. And uh, we had the minute silence. And the work, I was, it was, I'm glad it was nice. raining. Glad it was raining because everybody was crying, mm, and sure. it's making me shiver now just even thinking about it. It's um, it was formative moments, but that takes us to sort of the tail end of the pandemic, which is where we are now. And me and you have been having this discussion about what could I bring, what would I offer mm. use and health, and we'd sort of chatted and we danced around the handbags a bit, and then 
and you know let's not be shy about this i went for the chief exec job i didn't get the chief executive job and the timing just felt right for me to dip my toe into a very different arena somewhere where i am so far away from being a subject matter expert it's untrue Mm. but somewhere where 15 years of medical leadership and management could be exceptionally useful but Louise I'm only five days in so don't judge me yet (laughs) no but I think it's very interesting because when we both met in 1995 and somebody if we'd gone to see a futurist or you know someone with a crystal ball and said right in 2022 the two of you be working together you will be running a menopause clinic and you'll be working with it we would just go no way absolutely no way and I'm not even interested in, well, I'm interested, of course, but not as a specialty in gynaecology. So women's health is often grouped as a gynaecological specialty. So it wasn't really my area of interest. I was always very scientific. I'd got a pathology degree as well as um, my medical degree. And you're from A&E, you know, so why would you even think menopausal women go into A&E? And of course, how wrong were we? Because we know that menopause isn't about women's health in the respect of a gynaecological specialty. It's a multi-system organ problem that affects every cell in our body. And there are a lot of women that go into A&E and are misdiagnosed with various conditions. But that's only a small part. We also, neither of us, wanted to work away from the NHS, you know, but we also... I know we've spoken about it before, we both qualified and we decided to do medicine because we wanted to make a difference to as many people as possible. And I know myself, when I left the NHS a few years ago, as in stopped being an NHS GP, I was really sad about it. And my husband kept saying, but you're going to make a bigger difference in bigger ways than you could do just in day-to-day seeing 30 or so patients or 50 patients a day. And it took me a lot to understand that. And it's weird, really, because when you left your A&E work, Paul, my husband and I often said, well, why is Magnus doing management stuff? Gosh, he's such a talented doctor. He's as cool as cucumber. He'd run the trauma unit. I can't understand it. And I think because we don't know much, do we, about management, because we're not trained in it as part of our undergraduate training, I didn't really understand the enormity of what you've been doing over the years because it you know you I remember when you were going to America we were saying well that's nice but you know didn't really know what you were doing but actually we both want to make the biggest difference to the largest number of people and also we want to work with a team that's dynamic forward thinking can make a difference and enjoy the journey and no journey is going to be smooth and there's always going to be problems and there's always going to be turbulence but I think over the Maybe the last year I have phoned you up with a couple of crisis calls to say, Magnus, this is really big and I don't know what to do. And you would just laugh and say, yeah, it's enormous. The more I think about the menopause, the more I realise it's affecting my staff. Do you remember? I remember you mm. saying once, Louise, a lot of my staff are either, as in nursing staff, are either your patients, their balance users, or sadly they're giving up or reducing their hours because they're menopausal. And I think you'd started then to realise, hadn't you, the enormity of what we're trying to do here so I think two bits to that Louise so this is where I've got to sort of clinically fess up to everybody and think there's any number of women who are perimenopausal and menopausal who probably didn't get the best deal from me when I was a clinician working in emergency departments so how many people have I sent for 24-hour ECG tapes to try and work out what their tachycardia was or even if there was a tachycardia there I don't know how many women did I see 
with type 2 diabetes who were of the right age and you know I know now because me and you've talked about it mm-hmm. and the impact of hormones even on the acute presentations should not in any way go unheralded in the future but each step in my career what I've done is change the number of people the population that I represent and I I'm very much, you know, we can both remember those medical school interviews where you go in and you say something quite glib, just want to make a difference. It was quite glib, but I meant it then and I mean it now. Mm. And, you know, if I was on call for trauma, I might see one patient in eight hours as you make a diagnosis and pull all the right specialties in to build up a treatment plan. As you become a medical director, you represent the whole population that attends that particular hospital. As a medical director in a bigger organisation, that gets bigger. So I've sort of gone from one patient potentially per shift to 300,000 when I was at Burton Hospitals to over a million at Derby Teaching Hospitals. And listen, I'm going to quote a statistic now. I've only learned this this week. Thank you, Louise. So it moves from that 1.2 million to 1.2 billion internationally. And the bit I particularly find exciting is the ambition we have, you have, essentially, because it's all down to you, and I'm here hoping to be part of that journey, is to make a difference to women everywhere. Mm. And it's that equitable offer that we're searching. We're searching for that sweet spot where there's an equitable offer for everybody so that we can look ahead and look to women who are beyond the tradition. I say beyond the menopause age. I don't really mean that. Menopause goes on from when your hormones drop till the end of life. But the advantage we've got now is that with the right treatment, and I'm not saying everybody should have HRT, but with the right treatment, we decrease cardiovascular problems, we decrease the type 2 diabetes, we decrease dementia, and we stop the osteoporosis. And that's the bits we know about right now. And, you know, I remember me and you having a conversation during COVID about how many women did I see on our intensive care units who were on HRT, and I remember answering that question, having spoken to both our sets of ITU consultants, zero. We didn't find a single woman. And that, you know, then you start thinking about the immune modulatory capability of estrogens. Louise, I'd never thought about that before, never, never imagined it. And then, you know, the endothelial response to estrogens as well. I was never aware of this as a doctor. Yeah. But the impact we can potentially have now by getting it right right now nationally and internationally is huge it's absolutely huge and i think what's because it's so huge it's quite scary and when things are scary people often withdraw and don't do it i think that's what's happened the last 20 years actually there is a bit of gender inequality there's a lot of sexist ageism but actually I'm really interested in healthy ageing. And a lot of people think about ageing as just a few wrinkles. We're always going to get that as we age, that's fine. But it's about the accelerated ageing that leads to diseases, the inflammation. And I think, you know, having the immune system as healthy as possible, we know with the pandemic how important it was. But we also need to know, you know, number one killer is cardiovascular disease and dementia in women globally. 
and we need to look at other inflammatory conditions and actually even clinical depression, Parkinson's disease, dementia are thought of to be inflammatory conditions. If our immune system isn't primed well, it doesn't work well, it fights against us and all these cytokines, these chemicals are produced, they accelerate the way we age and we talk a lot now, don't we, about sort of fragility and how healthy we can be until the time we die and the problem is after the menopause, for a lot of women, their health decelerates really it gets older a lot quicker and therefore there's a bigger drain on the economy and you only need to look at one in two women who have osteoporosis after the menopause one in three have osteoporotic hip fractures I was told that the mortality from an osteoporotic hip fracture was 20% after a year but a professor of orthopaedics told me yesterday it's 25% I can't think of you know, most cancers, 25% of people don't die after a year of diagnosis. And I know this is really depressing for the podcast, but actually osteoporosis is never on the front page of a magazine or a newspaper. People think more about breast cancer, but far less women have breast cancer and far less women die from breast cancer, which is wonderful. But we have to look at the diseases that are affecting our ability to work. And the, also what's really affecting the NHS at the minute is social care. We know there aren't enough people who are working in social care, in, in nursing homes, residential homes. A lot of the women that do work in these places are menopausal. We know at least 10% of women who are menopausal give up their jobs. A lot more want to reduce their hours and don't go for promotion. So they're not being cared for by the right people. But we also know, and I'd love to know at a more national level, but I know we did a survey from our patients, Rebecca Lewis did one from our patients, just in order, just trying to see how many patients we had in nursing homes, residential homes, care homes, sheltered accommodation, who were on HRT. And you can imagine it's the same number as the number in intensive care on HRT, zero. That does not mean HRT keeps you out of these places but actually HRT we know builds muscle strength builds bone strength helps improve cognition helps stamina so a lot of women we see who are older on HRT they are doing their shopping every day they're independent some of them are still working in their 70s and 80s and that's really important for their individual quality of life for sure but it's more important when you think about social care so There's also some debate, and I've been talking to a professor this morning from Liverpool about the ethics of denying treatment that's evidence-based. And why is it that we're denying treatment that could help people get back to work and to function better and be healthier, especially women from areas of social deprivation who we know are neglected more? And this, I know, is an area that's really close to your heart, isn't it? So I think there's a heck of a quite a lot in there there to talk about but I think I believe the patriarchal male view of medicine to one side if you just think about osteoporosis for menopausal women why haven't we really ever thought about what the cause of that is Mm. so we treat it almost as a symptom and you know I'm sure your orthopedic colleague tells you that bisphosphonates just make bones yeah, it increases the density, but the more brittle and more difficult to work with. Mm. So we rather glibly treat osteoporosis. No, don't worry, we've got that covered. Yeah, in actual fact, nobody's thought, why is this actually happening? So that was one thing that resonated from what you just said. I think the social care issue at the moment is massive. And 
you know, how many more people would we have working in social care if they were on the right hormones and felt able to work? Who knows? Probably a significant number would be my guess on that. But the health inequalities, and again, I hate to bring it back to COVID. If we look at COVID data nationally, and you are one of the population that is suffering from the multiple indices of deprivation, your likely outcome from COVID was far, far worse than it would have been for other groups. And I've got this really concerning worry that those groups, if they're not treated for the menopause in the right way, will also suffer more deleterious health outcomes. I have no doubt. Mm. And I think the conjuring act, the trick, the sleight of hand that we need to pull now is how we in news and health look at treating more and more people in the most efficient effective responsive and equitable way possible yeah and i think you know we've got the ability to do it so it's very interesting you know running a private clinic everyone thinks it's about treating people with money and it's not actually and you know having the clinic now has enabled us to give a lot of money for research for education towards balance app helping people globally as well but, you know, we've only been going for four years, so there's a lot more we can do. And having people like you, hopefully, that we can use and abuse, but also be part of this exciting team to transform health going forwards is going to be really exciting. So I'm very, very pleased that you agreed to come on board, Magnus, and you've nearly completed your first week. And I managed to um, detract you from your work to record the podcast so I think there's short-term plans, there's long-term plans, there's there's a lot we can do. And I think the biggest thing is just having your enthusiasm, knowledge and skills that will really help work at pace to make a difference. So the first thing is thank you, kind words. And just to absolutely reassure you, if I thought for any second that you weren't motivated by making a difference to the patients you represent, you know, we'd have still been chatting, but it wouldn't have been on your podcast. <laughs> so I'm here completely for that. And, you know, detractors may suggest that it's a private clinic. It is a private clinic, but we're quite an altruistic organisation. And I've seen that already within the first week mm. from a research, from an education perspective and what the plans are going forward for how we invest wisely but invest wisely for the entirety of the population we represent yeah so i'm looking forward to getting you back i was going to joke and say in a week's time to see what we've achieved but maybe i'll give you a bit longer (laughs) (laughs) to see because i think it's very important to show the world and hopefully some of this conversation to our listeners how much we are doing behind the scenes and i'm not very good at singing my own praises and blowing my own trumpet because it's a teamwork it's not me that's doing all of this but actually the bigger the team the stronger we are the more powerful we are and the more that we can do and I think that's really important and you know I've talked a lot before in the podcast about my detractors and people that are bullying and trying to stop me but it's not about me anymore actually it's about us it's about us as a team helping women who need the help and so we're not going to stop we're here to stay so I'm very grateful Magnus but before we go I would just like to put you on the spot and ask you for three tips and I'm going to ask you for three ways that you personally 
think that you can bring to our organisation to improve the global health of women? Because that's our mission. So you and I both know that nothing teaches humility like medicine does. And I have lost more £10 bets on diagnoses than I care to remember. So I think the first thing for me, I will be humble. And I'll be humble because we don't know all the answers all the time. And it sort of links into a professional curiosity is being humble. You know, if we look back through history of medicine, we've got a bunch of stuff wrong. Mm. So let's not perpetuate that. Let's all be professionally curious and humble and try and think in the right way about what we're doing. That's my number one. My number two, and for anybody that's watched anything by Michael West, whether it's in person or on YouTube, I absolutely aspire to be a compassionate leader. What do I mean by that? Compassionate leadership is listening with absolute fascination to people to understand their particular issue. Now, whether that's in a clinic setting for our clinicians or whether it's as I manage and lead in the organization, I will listen to understand so I can empathize in the right way and then ask a question around what can I do to help? What is my role in providing an intelligent solution to each particular issue? So being humble, I'll be compassionate. And then my third one, and again, we talk about values a lot, but one of the behaviours that sits behind most values in any healthcare setting is kindness. And I think kindness is absolutely essential. It's, it's kindness in spirit. Mm-hmm. It's kindness in thought. It's kindness in actions and deeds. But it's kindness in time as well, so giving of our time. And for any Newton Health employees that are listening to this, or anybody else for that matter, if I'm not behaving in those ways, if I'm not demonstrating the humility, the compassion and the kindness, you've got it now. Call me out on it. Mm. I want to hear. Brilliant. I love it. And um, I'm very pleased that you're on board working with us because those three values are so important, not just in the clinic, not just in menopause care, in everything that we do. And I still use values a lot in my children as well. And I think you can't measure kindness. We can't do research on kindness. It's not so part of our job description, but it's so important because kind people make the days go better. Mm. I think that's so key. So I'm very grateful, Magnus. I'm not going to keep you any longer because I would like you to go back and do some work. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been really enlightening and I've learned quite a lot about you, which has been wonderful. So thank you. Thank you. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, please visit my website, balance-menopause.com, or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play.